You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. of serving on our sending team and as a community group leader with my husband Jordan. Um, and today's scripture passage is from Matthew 5, 17 through 26 from the NIV. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there... And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Thank you, Mandy. It's been said, we preach best what we need to learn most. Hopefully that means this will be a decent sermon because I need to learn how to deal with my anger. And if I understand what Jesus is saying, then so do you. So let me lead us in prayer now. and Let's invite the spirit of God to speak to us that we might experience the healing of our anger. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you expose and reveal sin in us, not to condemn us, but to heal us. And so we're asking this morning, especially as we reflect on this topic of anger, that you would get personal with each of us and specific for we want to experience healing and freedom. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you desire to say and that you would lead us to Jesus, that we might experience that healing. And for those who do not yet know you, that they would trust in Jesus today and be saved. We pray all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. Well, if you live long enough, you will inevitably hear the phrase and admonition, control your anger. And you may even respond as I have and oftentimes by replying, 
with, I don't need to control my anger. Everyone else around me just needs to control their habit of making me angry. (laughs) Well, according to the Bible, anger is an issue for everyone. And it begins in the heart. Like ink settled at the bottom of a clear glass of water, you may not see it until that glass of water gets bumped. And then the ink begins to rise and swirl. And what was previously settled at the bottom now clouds everything. We all experience anger, but we express it in different ways. Some of you blow up. And we all know who you are because it's very visible. But other people clam up. And you know who you are. (laughs) It's not as visible. But inside, even with a, a neutral expression on your face, could be seething in anger inside. Whichever way we express it, if our anger is not dealt with rightly, it becomes a destructive force in our lives and in the lives of others. You may never go to such lengths as physical violence, but Jesus says that unrighteous anger must be dealt with and dealt with at the root. We're spending this season looking at the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus goes beyond what we see in the surface, all the way down to the thoughts and the intent of the heart, our motives. So how can we experience healing and change when it comes to this issue of anger? In chapter five, in this section, Jesus speaks about the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And he shows us what the law is always getting at. Last week, Dom walked us through the previous section And we learned that the law of God is really the blueprint for human flourishing, but by itself is unable to change us. The command of the law itself is not able to deal with our hearts. It can make us aware of the problem. It can even mitigate our brokenness, but it cannot heal us. But Jesus, who himself is the fulfillment of God's law, gets down to the very core of our being. And transforms us. And so here, in addressing the sixth commandment of the ten, he does so in a way that goes beyond the typical understanding of the law. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the day of Jesus, who were the custodians or guardians of the law, many of them had blunted the law of God by not acknowledging what the law was really getting at. In this case, the point of the command, you shall not murder, is not, hey, everybody, as long as you just stop short of killing people, you're fine. That's how many would understand it. Like, I haven't, you know, some of us have said, I haven't killed anyone, geez. And we think like, I'm good, I fulfilled the law. But what the law is getting at is not, hey, everyone, stop short of murder, but rather don't get anywhere near it. Not even in your words. But before we dive in, there's an important distinction 
and clarification that needs to be made. It is important for every one of us to know that there is a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. For when you read the Bible, you will read about righteous anger. God himself has righteous anger, which is always rooted in love. Jesus himself displayed this righteous anger when he saw the crowds of Israel being cheated by the money changers in the courts of the temple who were robbing the people who came to worship. And Jesus famously flipped over tables. There is a righteous anger. And that is why you find statements like this. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This verse alone indicates that there is occasion for anger and sometimes it can be right, but don't sin in that anger and deal with it quickly. There is such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, we would say that someone is unloving if they aren't angered by certain things. Imagine for a moment if, if God was not angered by the violence and injustice and evil in the world today. And he just said, eh, is what it is. He wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. Now, how do I know when anger is right? Well, here's one definition. When this anger is based on a true perception of evil and it is expressed with self-control, without retaliation, and without losing your temper. Now, as you hear that, we're like, well, yeah, we're all out. (laughs) Having said that, many of the passages in the Bible when it speaks of human anger is generally not good. And so you have James chapter one, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Most of the ordinary anger that we are used to and that society accepts is usually sinful when looked at in light of the Bible. And so if we are to thrive in the kingdom of God, following the way of Jesus, our anger must absolutely be addressed. And we're going to do so from this passage under three headings. The acknowledgement of anger, the alternative to anger, and the antidote for anger. So first, we need to acknowledge our anger. And no doubt when Jesus addresses this, the religious leaders of his day assumed, again, that they had fulfilled the law by stopping just short of murder. But to that, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
The first thing we must do when we come to a text like this is to acknowledge that anger is a problem. Unrighteous anger is a problem. And we can't deal with something unless we acknowledge that it is a problem. And here Jesus reveals that it must be dealt with in three ways. There's the source of our anger, the symptoms of our anger, and the sentence against our anger. So three ways in which he deals with it here. But I want you to notice the verbiage that Jesus uses here. Because some of us think, wait, I I got angry. Is that a sin? Well, this is where the language is helpful. When Jesus says, when someone is angry, it's spoken in the present tense. Here's why that's important. It's one thing to get angry, and it's another thing to carry anger. It's another thing to remain in anger. So Jesus doesn't say, if someone gets angry, that's not what he's saying here. It's the attitude of staying angry, which presumes a decision to carry it around. All kinds of things are an occasion for for anger. The other week, someone cut me off in the most horrendous way on the 101. And can we just all admit that road rage is like a thing? You, You imagine things on the freeway that you would never say out loud. Can we talk about this? This person cut me. It was like horrendous. But here's where it got weird. I spent the next 20 minutes, no music, in my car, imagining all the ways that driver would be punished. And I was creative. I'm going to leave that to your imagination. I made a decision to nurse it and to carry it and to remain in it. It's one thing to get angry. Like what they did was wrong. But the choice to remain and to carry that anger. Well, that's a choice. So to deal with this anger, we must acknowledge that it begins with the heart. It begins with that decision. And that is what Jesus is getting at. Before the action is the attitude. Before any crime of the hands is a crime of the heart. Now, other people and situations may occasion your anger, but what is the root cause of your decision to remain in anger? Well, one author hilariously put it like this. Find an angry person, and you have found someone with a wounded ego. See, unrighteous anger looks at every circumstance from a self-centered perspective and a desire to remain in control. If we're honest, so often those are the reasons why we remain in anger. You want peace and quiet? Someone is noisy? You're not just sad that they're creating a disturbance. You lose it. Oh, friends, we had these neighbors in London. Uh, Listen, my kids were born and raised in East Hollywood, like helicopters, gunshot, like it was nuts, right? But never was I tested like I was until those years living in this one particular house when our neighbors moved in. They were the worst. They didn't just party, they raged. And here's the thing. It wasn't just at 10 o'clock, sure, nor was it 11, nor was it midnight. We're talking 3 a.m. They started to party. 
Like it was so bad that my wife, who according to all the statistics and the measurements and the personality tests is like 90% introverted, would throw open the window and be like, you must stop. And I was like, that's like one of three. I've been married for 22 years. And it's like one of three times I've heard my wife yell. And I would get up early to like prepare for my sermon. And I was, fear- I, this is what I literally prayed. I was like, God, either save them or smite them. <laughs> Maybe just smite them. I, they were ruining my situation. Maybe you want to manage your appearance, but someone makes you look bad. So you're furious. You want to get somewhere on time. Some of you are like, what, what is that? Oh, it's, you know. <laughs> Someone delays you. You lose it. When you get angry, you must examine your anger. You must examine, why am I angry? For example, there's many parents in the room. Your children make you angry for their behavior. And it may very well be that they have done something that is, that is wrong. But what is the primary reason for your fury and your decision to carry it or remain in anger? Is it because they genuinely did something wrong and you're grieved for them? Or is it because that you were inconvenienced or you were made to look bad in front of all of your other parent friends? How they made you look in public. By the way, this is a thing with parents and counting is more for you than it is for your children. And any parent in this room knows that. You're like, one, two. Like kids, it does literally nothing for kids. The counting does nothing. It's all about you. It's all about like three. Holy Spirit of God, come fill me. Holy Spirit, five. Welcome, six. Why are you angry? Maybe somebody's been gossiping about you. Are you more angry that that is genuinely a sin or because it made you look bad? You need to acknowledge and examine your anger and listen to the inner dialogue that takes place within your heart on those occasions because otherwise, here's what we do. We justify our anger without restraint and decide even if it's just in our imagination, to make other people pay. And that is where it becomes a will to harm, even if only verbally expressed, which is precisely what Jesus mentions here. There's the source of our anger, and then there's the symptoms. We need to examine our heart. We also need to observe the way we express our anger. Jesus uses an example here for anyone who says raka, which literally means stupid idiot. (laughs) Some are like, oh, I'm guilty. (laughs) Why do that? Why does that person, it literally means empty headed person. Like, why do you even exist right now? Now, some of us might think, well, it's such a small thing. I say things like that all the time. And by the way, it would be important for us to include that this involves not just the things you say verbally, but the way you behave online. The things that you type, 
unrighteous anger expressed in verbal form might seem small to you. But as John Wesley once said, there are only such things as small sins if there's a small God. And so whatever might be small to us is not small to God. Our anger is often expressed through gossip, slander, and insults. And though it might not be physical murder, Jesus condemns it here as essentially character assassination. And so we're all different in this room, but we need, to, we need to ask, what is the motivation of my anger and in which ways am I expressing it? How is it working itself into my words? Or some of you are like the stonewall type. You just refuse to engage with people at all. You shut them down. We must acknowledge the source. We must also acknowledge the symptoms. And third, Jesus declares a sentence on our unrighteous anger. He wakes us up to the seriousness of this with a reference to judgment. Beyond the human court, doesn't matter what our culture thinks, but he elevates this to the divine court. What does God think? He said, you're in danger of the fires of hell. The fires of hell there is the word Gehenna, which historically was the place where God judged the idolatry of the people of Israel. Later on, historians believe it became the place where all the the garbage was heaped and and burned with, with fire. And so this word was used as a metaphor for God's eternal judgment. In giving yourself to sinful anger, you devalue a human soul and thus the one who created that soul. Which is, by the way, the beginning of hell. See, imagine a world where only your anger exists, your unrighteous anger, because you want nothing else. That's what C.S. Lewis did in his fictional work called The Great Divorce, where he puts in narrative form the trajectory of what happens when this is the case. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but still you are distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. To insist on living in unrighteous anger is to set yourself on this course. And if you want to run from God, in his perfect justice, he sends you where you want to go. Ongoing unrighteous anger 
will destroy your heart and your soul. It will also act like a cancer amongst all of your relationships. We must deal with it because the consequences are great. And that is why Jesus addresses it in the way that he does. The severity of these words should awaken our hearts to the holiness of God and to the value of the people around you. Where is it that you are excusing your anger? Could be with your parents, your spouse, your children, your friends. Could be other people in this church. And you've made that choice to carry your anger, remain in your anger. In what way have you chosen that? Jesus wants to expose it today. And he's not doing so because it means so little, but so much. We need to acknowledge our anger and be honest before God and before ourselves because so much of what we excuse within ourselves is condemned by God. This has been particularly convincing for me, especially in hard stages of life. You just justify your anger. But in his love, he exposes it. And then secondly, gives us the alternatives to anger. How should we respond? When perhaps we have been wronged or someone has, we've wronged them. How do we respond to situations that cause anger in a way that we don't carry that anger? What's the alternative? Well, Jesus gives us two. And they are both practical and actionable. For Jesus says, therefore, and he gives us two ways. Practice reconciliation with people and pursue resolutions for our problems. So first, we must pursue reconciliation with people. He says in verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, this scene is actually quite hilarious. Here's why. A worshiper in Israel at that time would rarely get the chance to go to the temple in Jerusalem and offer this, this gift. In fact, if these words were spoken in, in Galilee, then it was, you know, about 80 miles, I believe it's so, all the way to Jerusalem. Like, this is a journey. This is a trek. Like, hey, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, going to offer my, my gift, however long it would take you. Like, it is a trek, like a full-on ancient road trip. It's a big deal. And so Jesus is saying that reconciliation is so important that even if you made the journey to Jerusalem, you should leave your gift at the altar and go all the way back 
and be reconciled. Why? Because unrighteous anger and resentment is so destructive that pursuing reconciliation is of the utmost importance. And it can be wonderfully healing. After all, it's really hard to hate someone that you're trying to reconcile with. The same is true of praying for someone. It's really hard to hate someone when you're praying for them. The New Testament tells us that worship is a daily thing. Romans 12 says we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable worship. And as we do, the Holy Spirit will convict us of our unrighteous anger and compel us to reconcile. But there's a bit more detail here that needs our attention, and this actually shows the kind of love that God is after. Did you notice that Jesus says, if someone has something against you, wait a minute. This means that we have to ask Am I responsible for someone else's anger? Have I occasioned someone else's anger? If so, this is how radical this is. I am to go seek them out. Wait a minute, Jesus. They have my number. They can call me if they want. That's how I respond. I'm like, not my problem. You know where I live. Actually, you don't know where I live because I would never tell you. <laughs> you can DM me. I'll never check it. <laughs> Leave you on red. That's how most of us behave. But Jesus is saying something radical. If I have been the cause of someone else's anger, I should go seek them out. Here's what that would look like. Hey, I think you're angry with me and I want to understand why and what I can do to make it right. Can you imagine if we actually did this? Or if you're on the receiving, let's say you're the one that has been wronged, then you should take the initiative to say, hey, I've been angry because of something that you did. By the way, you actually need to have a reason to be angry and not so something made up in, in your head. Just want to be really clear. This is about real fault, not perceived fault. My wife had a dream a few weeks ago that I did something stupid and she was like mad at me in the morning. I was like, it's a dream, right? She's like, yeah, but I'm mad at you. I'm like, I didn't do it, but in my dream you did. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, in that case, now, don't get me wrong. I do a lot of stupid things. <laughs> she has, I'm like, you have a hundred reasons to be mad at me. That's not one of them. <laughs> but if you have been the one wronged, then you should essentially say, I've been angry about something that you did and I wanna make sure I think about it in the right way and I sort it out with you. In other words, in any situation of anger, regardless of who was at fault, we should take the first step toward reconciling. That's radical. We should take the first step. And related to this is the second alternative to anger, 
pursue resolution for the problem. In this next parable, Jesus specifically calls it a matter. He says in verse 25 and 26, settle matters, the problem itself, quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The illustration refers to the urgency of sorting out the problem before it reaches a disastrous end. Note that it says, settle the matters or settle matters, meaning there are specific problems or issues that need resolving. This little parable is designed to say this, don't allow bad problems to go unresolved in your relationships or it will cost you greatly. Which raises the question for you and me. Are there any unresolved areas of conflict that we are ignoring or putting off? It's not that important. It doesn't matter. I don't want to deal with it. Please, friends, note the urgency with which Jesus instructs us to do this. He, he couldn't be more clear in how important it is to deal radically with anger at the source in our hearts who acknowledge it and how urgently we should deal with occasions for anger in our relationships. He could not be more clear. Even if you've traveled, a, you know, 80 miles, stop what you're doing. And take the first step. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, like I've tried. I've I've tried, I've I've pursued this person and that's a real thing. What if you've already sought them out and they've just closed the door on you? Does that mean that you can't worship freely because they've chosen to be angry with you? No. And there's two reasons why. You need to know this so that you don't have a false sense of guilt. And those two reasons are in one sentence from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The two things worthy of note. It is not always possible. And it does not always depend on you. But if it is possible... So much as it does depend on you. Take that first step. Yes, there will be times the door is slammed shut. They don't want to pursue the conversation. They no forgiveness, no none of that. But as long as you've made that first step, that's what you need to attend to. God delights in reconciliation. He delights in brotherly kindness and he wants it to flourish in our lives and in our community. So are we justifying and nursing our resentment, our bitterness, carrying anger? Are we like the Pharisees only asking, well, how much resentment can I get away with? Or are we asking, how can I follow Jesus? How can I follow the way of Jesus? 
Well, acknowledge it in your heart and make the first move towards others. Give urgency to this matter. Because there is so much more at stake than the financial consequences of this short parable. For Jesus in saying, truly I tell you, it alerts us to a much more important and greater purpose than just avoiding debt or imprisonment. For you will be found fighting against God. We must take this to heart. I must acknowledge the anger that I'm carrying. I must take that first step towards reconciliation and resolution. You, today, must acknowledge the anger that is in your heart and take that first step. And I know that is so hard to do. It is so hard to make the first move. But that's when we must remember that God made the first move towards us when we sinned against him. And that's the last thing. We need to acknowledge our anger. We need to listen to the alternatives to anger. But third, we need an antidote for our anger. And in short, the antidote is the gospel. Christ The Son of God was perfectly sinless, totally innocent, and technically unobligated to seek out those who rejected him, like you and me. But he did. He did. That's why Paul the Apostle says in the book of Romans, Christ demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Now, where do we get this from this passage? Well, aren't these parables interesting? Because Jesus talks about the great debt that your anger incurs before God, the fire of hell, and then he immediately gives instructions for redemptive practices. Well, what about the debt? What about the consequences? See, in those ancient prisons, you would not be able to earn money. That means you were unable to get yourself out of prison. You were stuck there unless someone from the outside paid your debt in full. And this, friends, is exactly what Jesus did in the gospel. We, because of our sin and our unrighteous anger, we were in a prison of debt. But Jesus came from the outside lived a perfectly righteous life. And when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago and died in our place for our sin, he paid every last penny owed to the righteous standard of God's law so that we could be set free. And he rose again and he gave us a new heart and he put his Holy Spirit inside of us. That is grace. Grace. 
And so the antidote to carrying anger is receiving grace. It's receiving grace. See, the the pressure of anger that builds up in us and you're like, my spouse, they need to pay. My kids, they need to pay. My parents, they need to pay. These people in the church, they need to pay. But Jesus says, I paid. I paid it. I paid their debt in full. And I paid yours as well. This passage shows the kind of love that God is after. And it is made possible by the love that God has given. See, these practices here that are prescribed, they don't make you a Christian. They push you towards Jesus Christ so that you might receive mercy and grace who then turns you into the type of person that pursues resolution and reconciliation. By grace, you have been reconciled to God through the cross. And this truth heals your heart of anger. And in its place, the Holy Spirit produces in you all kinds of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so the healing of anger ultimately happens when you receive grace. And when you receive grace, you reflect grace. When you receive grace, you reflect grace. Christ was sacrificed so that our relationships would not have to be. Christ was sacrificed so that your life would not have to be. And that is why Paul instructs us in these ways. He says in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The gospel is our antidote. Receiving grace and reflecting grace. So this morning, friends, we need to acknowledge the source and the symptoms of our anger. Where are we making excuses Where am I nursing my resentments? Today, make a decisive break with your anger. And then pray, bring it to God. That's why the Psalms are so wonderful. They is essentially like praying your anger to God. The Psalmist says, I'm angry, but God, I'm bringing that into your presence so that I would not be controlled by it. And then ask God to look at others through the lens of Christ. Because that person you're angry with, God has spared them his wrath because of Christ. Should you not spare yours? (laughs) That person you're angry with at the church, listen, you may not like God's adoption policies, but it's the same one for you. (laughs) He adopts sinners by grace. 
So in the moment that you're dealing with your anger, you stop, you examine, and then you pray. Count to 10 if you need to and invite the Holy Spirit to heal you. Allow the Spirit to speak and make reconciliation, A-S-A-P, as you look to Christ. Because the antidote to carrying anger is receiving grace. And that's what this moment right now is all about, receiving grace. Let's pray that we would do that. Father, I pray that we would not excuse what it is you are revealing when it comes to our unrighteous anger and our bitterness and our resentment and our grudges. I pray that we would listen to your Holy Spirit and not resist him knowing that you do not reveal these things to condemn us, but to heal us. You call us to confess our sin and you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray that we would not leave this place without responding to that invitation to confess and to receive grace. I pray for those who don't know you, Pray that they would know there's no healing of anger without receiving Christ. There's no dealing with the penalty that they owe without receiving Christ. And I pray that now they would say from their heart, Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me, rose for me. I trust in you. And Holy Spirit, would you turn us into people of peace? May you do that work in us as we respond now in Jesus' name.